You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. To Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, you pulled the trigger on his da 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 love gun. It's Jeff McLeod. <laughs> I wanted to sing along with that, but I, I felt like I was stepping on your lines if I did. Hey man, how's it going? <laughs> Those are some of my favorite kiss harmonies in my yeah. one of my least favorite kiss songs. Really? Oh, I, I've always liked that one, and I, I I think it's because the very first time I heard it, I was playing with a paper like snap gun that came with the album. Yes, and I was like, "This is the greatest thing ever." Yeah, Love Gun was actually the first Kiss album that I owned. I got that one in the Gene Simmons solo album of Christmas oh, that okay. year. Yep, 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 yep. Speaking of music for people of a certain age, as you know, mm-hmm. we often we often talk about listening to Kiss when we were kids, and yes. Kiss at the time was contemporary, and we were with fell within their age demographic for a few years at least of their early period. Right. Uh, Whenever somebody complains about modern music, I always just remind them, "What do you think our parents thought of Kiss?" You know what I mean? Like I've got kids now, and they listen to well, kids now that are almost adults. One of them technically is an adult. I'm starting to cycle through the music that they listen to now because they have their own tastes and their own styles and their own favorite artists. And the right. finding myself being more and more like my father, like, what the heck is this? I you mean, know? it's different now because they both have their driver's licenses. Whatever they're like in the car with you and they're playing their music. You're, I mean, I remember you got really into Taylor Swift just by osmosis. Right? Yeah, by exposure through my daughter when she was much younger. That was when the Red record first came out. That's become somebody that I still listen to. I have all of Taylor Swift's records from Red, right up through the re-release of Red, the Taylor version. And there's a couple of other bands that, that they both really like that I also go and listen to on my own now, like Jeff Rosenstock sometimes and others. So, uh, You know, last year I did that album a day challenge yes. and twice during the year, Billie Eilish came up. And it's not really like something I would expect to be listening to, mm-hmm. but I found myself going back to her on more than one occasion. And then whenever she hosted Saturday Night Live, I was like watching the clips of you know her sketches, her performances, and particularly her monologue. Yep. I just found her really like endearing. I liked her. You know what I mean? Not yeah. just the music, but I liked her. I thought she was like a cool personality. Yeah, she's like she's just a kid. She's only like I think she turned twenty like right after the Saturday Night Live episode. I watched Billie Eilish eat increasingly hot chicken wings on some YouTube show. It was yeah. wicked funny. She's she was really good under pressure. And even though it's like few and far between, I do like the fact that I'm Generation X. We're both Generation X and I could still find modern music that I actually really like and enjoy. Yeah, me too. The cutoff line is 35 years old. 
Yeah. You know, it, it definitely once you, you get there, it's like, that's kind of where you plateau. That's why the people that are in my age group at work are the ones who are like, you think they're going to play Thunderstruck this hour on WZID? And it's like, <laughs> I guarantee you they're going to play Thunderstruck. They play it every 15 bloody minutes on this station. Like, I love that song. I love Thunderstruck. It was my favorite song when I was peaking in high school. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> I found myself uh, spending the last, like, almost two weeks listening just over and over again to the re- the four records that The Weeknd put out, oh, all right, especially yeah. After Hours, the most recent one. What a fantastic record that is. I don't know him well. All I know is that he played the Super Bowl halftime a couple of years ago. Yep. Some of, the, like, the older Gen X people, like, like just on the cusp of boomers, yep. were just like going off about how much they hated him. I was like, oh, he must be pretty cool then. <laughs> he borrows a lot of his style from like Thriller era, Michael Jackson and Prince. There's a definitely a style of like 80s style in his later records that kind of comes through. But his stuff is really well written and beautifully produced and really, really, really fun to listen to. All right. So that's that's I'm going to put that on my list and you can... You can put Billie Eilish on your list, although I'm going to guess you've already been exposed to. I have, and all the young women who sound like Billie Eilish, which is like, <laughs> I don't know what any of the words mean. She sings just above audible. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, she does. She sounds like the kid who didn't read her homework, who didn't like read the assignment, <laughs> and is trying to like fudge her way through the morning discussion in class. Like, who here can summarize what we read about in Little House on the Prairie? Uh, Billie. All right, good enough. Let's go to the next person. So uh, Billie Eilish was nominated for 18 Grammy Awards, and she won eight of them. You know, That's a lot. Yeah, not bad for... Uh, Somebody who didn't read the assignment. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so she is well on her way to becoming the woman with the most amount of Grammys, but she's not wow. there yet. Who is the woman? Here's our trivia question. The very popular and always well-received trivia question. Which female has won the most Grammys? Uh, All right. Well, I'm going to think about this, and I'm going to give you an answer at the end of the show, and I'm going to try not to make it sound like... (laughs) All right. So this is the week beginning February the 28th, and I believe it is your turn to start. Is it? Oh, awesome. February 28th, 1939. The erroneous word Dord, spelled D-O-R-D, is discovered inside of Webster's New International Dictionary, second edition, (laughs) and it prompts an investigation as to, like, who put this word in and how it got in there and how come nobody caught it? Because Dord doesn't mean anything. It's not a word. Yes, it does. It does not. Dord is not a word. Though I never laid a hand on you, my eyes. It's a Dord. All right, never mind. (laughs) Well, that's like, it could be like a, it could be something like, hey, you didn't do the assignment last night, you Dord. (laughs) Now become an all-purpose word. It can be an adjective. It can be a noun, a verb. It doesn't matter. I'm Dording out. Catch you later. See ya. That's it. You know, I got a door in the oven. So what did the word mean in the dictionary? Obviously, it had a definition then. Well, it didn't. It was created by mistake by uh, a guy named Austin Patterson, who was the chemistry editor in 1931 uh-huh. and sent in a slip that read D, capital D or small lowercase D, period, C-O-N-T dot forward slash density. So D or D. Um, <laughs> And somebody was like, right, door. It's like an anchorman, right? Uh, Good night, San Diego. Who put a question mark on the teleprompter, right? I like the, in the Three Stooges movie, they have the donut remover. Right, yes, exactly, <laughs> donut remover. Yes, her, it was intended to add density to the existing list of words that the letter D can abbreviate. 
Yeah. But the unclear note, somebody was like, I'm not sure what this is supposed to mean. I get adored. You know what that means? <laughs> I don't know. Close enough. Just get it in there. We Time's a wasted. It's 1931. Pretty soon technology is going to catch up with us. We got a um, deadline. Yeah. We got a doored line. So it was in there for eight years before it was found. No one caught it in the editing and proofreading phase. They just assumed it was meant to be there. What a doored move to, to pull off like that. I tell you, man, they were doorting all over the place, I'm sure. So moving on to one of my favorite doorting albums. <laughs> all right. So moving on to the next day, March the 1st, 1973, Pink Floyd releases their Dark Side of the Moon album, which I'm sure you may have heard of. It rings a bell. Yes, right right at the very end of the live version, there's a big bell. <laughs> well, at the beginning of time. Yeah, that's true. There's a lot of Multiple them. Multiple yeah. bells. It's yeah. a lot of bells. I un- unapologetically absolutely love this record. I've always loved it since the very first time I heard it. I still listen to it, and it still sounds fresh. It, it's not their first album that starts to explore things that are less psychedelic and more just weirdly contemporary, but... Like money has like a kind of political slant to it, and us and them kind of has like a political slant to it, even though it's a kind of oblique doored, if you will. Uh, <laughs> like I have so many friends who went to see Roger Waters when he came around, um, touring on the "If This Is the Life You Really Want." Uh, yeah, the, that, really the name of that tour. tour was called "Us and Them." Yeah, I saw uh, "Us and Them." Right, I saw and that he, tour. But, yeah. He, they were outraged that his music was super political. And, and I'm like, D- have you listened to anything since Dark Side of the Moon? Dark Side of the Moon came out in 1973. Yeah. You know? Do you know who Roger Waters is? Have you, <laughs> you didn't listen to The Wall at all? Yeah. Did you just listen to Comfortably Numb? Do you only hear them on rock and roll radio? Is that it? Yeah. I always say that about Pink Floyd. I, say, I tell people, I'm like, do you like Pink Floyd or do you like the five or six songs that they play on the radio? And then they right. just kind of like look at their shoes and admit that they only know the five or six songs. Yeah. And, and that's like fine, that- too. Because those, those five to six songs are amazing. My little trivia that I happen to know about Dark Side of the Moon and Money in particular. Mm. At the end of Money, there's like a lot of people talking and kind of like saying like some non sequiturs. There's like, yeah. yeah, that old geezer was cruising for a bruising. And there's another guy right. that says, I don't know, I was really drunk at the time. And there's a couple of other things. Do you know what those all are? Uh, I think that's the very first time that Roger Waters was allowed to take a sound effects record and just jam anything he wanted into the end of a song? No, but that's a good guess. Roger Waters went around the the studio. That was recorded at Abbey Roads, I believe. Uh, But he went around the studio with index cards that had a bunch of questions on them. One of the cards said, tell me about the last time you got into a fight. And all of those answers are people from the studio. Oh, answering that question? Answering that question. So, oh, that geezer was cruising for a bruising. I don't know. I was really drunk at the time. Yeah, those are all answers to tell me about the last time you got into a fight. It makes me wonder, like, if that was the moment where he's like, you know, for every other record that we do, including all of whatever solo records come out of Pink Floyd, I feel like I could put car horns and the sound of airplanes and potentially typewriters and possibly uh, cash registers and other things like just buried into every single song and people will, will be like this is clearly a work of this is art. genius genius this is art this is the virtual doored <laughs> of rock and roll yeah obviously another one of the questions was are you afraid to die and that's where you hear the other guy say I'm not afraid to die. There's no reason for it. Got to go sometime. In Amused to Death, first track The Ballad of Bill Hubbard, it's like five minutes of a guy telling a World War One story. That's the whole song. <laughs> right. He's like, I carried Bill on my back. And he said, I can't run anymore. And it's like, what? Is there a record here? Like, <laughs> what am I supposed to be listening to? Right. And then Roger Waters goes right from that to screaming at me. <laughs> so, which is his typical thing. You have to keep turning the volume up to hear the old 
guy rambling on about something, and then it's Roger Waters yelling at you. All right, so next up on the second. Uh, March 2nd, 1983, making it much easier to listen to Dark Side of the Moon the way that it was meant to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, Compact disc recordings developed by Philips and Sony are introduced to the American marketplace. Oh, yeah. Actually remember that very well because MTV did like big contests that you could win a CD player and like I think you got like five CDs. Remember that was like such a game changer and stuff like that. You know, now CDs in the the age of streaming and MP3 players are just such like an antiquity. But I remember when they first came out going through Sears Right. When they actually still sold, well, when they were actually still open and they actually like sold electronics and stuff like that. And I remember the guy showing off the CD player, taking a CD, smearing peanut butter all over it, clearing the peanut butter off and then putting it in the CD player and it would play. Yep. Amazing. Yeah. I was like, oh, good. And he killed a guy who had an allergy like five minutes later just by shaking hands with him. Oh, he's got an anaphylactic shock. Somebody get me a Pink Floyd CD stat. <laughs> oh, no, you have to wait two years for the Blu-ray to come out. Oh, my God. It's Mr. Dord. He's gone down. <laughs> I remember when they were being first advertised and it was like, remember your records? And it was, they'd always picked like the K-Tel record that had been like left on the floor of a basement. I'd put it on and be like, doesn't it sound great? And you hear like poor, like cruel to be kind by Nick Lowe. And all you could hear is. <laughs> it's like, but with compact disc digital audio, it sounds like this. And it would say it would play Nick Lowe and it would sound really nice. It was this revolution in the ability to listen to music in a way that was always clear and interference free. And I remember the tagline was like the way it was meant to be heard. Right. And it was a huge deal. There is some limitations with CDs, like the maximum at that time was 76 minutes Mm -hmm. and then they were able to push it out to 80 minutes later on so if the album like pink floyd the wall which clocks in at just under an hour and a half that could not fit on one cd what's really great is that you didn't have to take care of your stuff anymore it's so hard to f up a cd yeah i have a couple that have gotten you know like they don't get scratched but the inside rots yeah so if there's a tiny like microscopic crack uh, moisture can get inside just from the air and it'll rot the, the, the foil on the inside and it won't play anymore. Right. My first um, Radiohead CD had that happen to it. Yeah, but you have to um, be really, really horrible to get them to the point where they don't play anymore. Yeah. you got to like purposely maltreat them for the most part. Yeah. yeah. Even <laughs> two things. One, it's funny that they, they're called compact discs because my CD collection takes up a lot of room as opposed to my MP3 collection. So they're not really all that compact anymore. But that format, that disc size, is still a standard because DVDs, Blu-rays, and now 4K discs are all that same size. I have I have a cube system full of record albums. Yep. It, I can't move it without taking all the albums out one at a time because it's too heavy. But if it was the same amount of compact discs, it would fit in just one cubby. So. Right. By that standard, they're small, but by today's standard, they are no longer. The best part about bottom was that you could just, like, they were easy to use in a car. You didn't have to have, like, fast forward and rewind tape decks. Right. And stuff didn't get mangled, and, and you, know, you could spill things on them, and they just last forever. Mark my words, there'll be a return to that format as time goes on, because out right now, albums are horrifically expensive. Yep. To buy, like, okay, so we were talking earlier in the show about Taylor Swift, right? I bought... Taylor Swift's re-release of Red, 50 bucks. Yeah. 
for two albums. I also bought the CD. It was eight bucks. So the economies of scale are such that you'll see that people, will, I think, will start to go back and be like, oh, you know what? I'd like to listen to the whole album at once instead of half of an album and then have to flip it right. or flip it twice. Yeah, the, the, um, the nostalgia will come back around, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, nostalgia is not going to come back around. <laughs> this this is going to be like someday soon, like a new segment, the worst movie ever. So <laughs> I look forward yeah. to it. On March the 3rd in 2018, the Emoji Movie is awarded the Razzie for the worst movie of 2017. Ah, uh, the Golden Raspberry is yeah. my favorite award. Yeah, now, did you ever see the Emoji Movie? No, neither did anybody else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I I didn't see that. Be- and like, whenever I heard that they announced it, I was just like, "How? How? Who? Yeah. One, who had this idea? Two, who greenlit it? And three, what are they doing for work these days? Because I'm gonna guess it was like this. Imagine it's someone just a little bit older than us, Bill. Ah, these kids and all their phones. <laughs> we need a movie that's really gonna work with these kids. My granddaughter keeps sending me pictures of these little smiley faces. Yeah. There's got to be a movie in that. Yeah. You like those emojis, don't you? Yeah. Hire one of them kids from the community college to write a script on spec. Yeah. Imagine being that. You're like somebody that's had aspirations their entire life to become a screenwriter. You know, and like my, my yeah. friend John. My friend John is an aspiring screenwriter. And then it's like, hey, we got you your first big gig. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. What is it? We need you to come up with a script for... <laughs> Hear me out now. Emoji. An emoji <laughs> movie. And you just hear like the slide whistle just like. Well, I guess I'm going to go back to waiting tables or I'll go back to working on my spec script for Dord. The motion picture. <laughs> I, I love the Razzies because they like to, they're very good at shining a light on, on the absurdity of terrible movies. So they've done like the Wild Wild West, given the award, not only to that film as the worst film of whatever year that came out. It was like 2010, I think. And to Will Smith. But they also gave it to Catwoman. Uh, and Halle Berry, who actually showed up and picked up her award. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, this movie was terrible. I watched it in the limo on the way over here. And others have gone in and, and like made speeches and stuff and like been involved in the, the sort of spirit of the terribleness that they were they were being recognized for. Uh, I can't imagine, you know, a, a movie about emojis. It's To me, that's like writing like the Kraft macaroni and cheese, the motion picture. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like, what the hell? What can, what can this possibly be about? It's, you know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I didn't see it. Directed by some door. I'm, <laughs> I'm looking up the credits of like the people that wrote the movie, the story and the screenplay to see what else they've done. And I don't. I don't recognize anything else that they've done. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Is it Alan Smithy? Is that the director? No, Tony Leondis was one of the writers, and he was also the director. Mike White, Eric Siegel. Yeah, I don't know any of these other... I think there's a reason that these movies come out, and it's it's like this. Like, hey, we made $4.6 billion last year with our superhero franchises, Uh and we are going to get taxed to death <laughs> unless we can show some losses so let's see let's get like brando and a oh the guys for that guy from thor what's his name hemsworth that australian dude yeah get him and get the wolverine guy too and uh put him in something put him in anything we need an intellectual property what can we get for like 20 bucks <laughs> right or, or alternatively, what's the most expensive thing that we can buy the rights to? How much does Google charge for us using the emojis <laughs> that they put out for free, right? So that they can they have a loss on their books that no one goes to see, and they're like, oh, you know, see, we didn't make all money. Put we put a hundred million into this stupid thing. All right, so what do we got on March the fourth? 
March the 4th, 1634, Boston, capital of Massachusetts, opens its very first tavern, which I'm sure is probably still open and has like a shamrock in the window. Yeah, I was about to say, it's a, it's a bar in Boston. It probably has an Irish theme to it, yeah. I'm sure the first night that they were there, the Boston's were playing. Well, yep, just spit my water. <laughs> yeah. So 1634 is pretty early. I since the you know Pilgrims landed in 1620, it didn't take long to go from uh, Plymouth Rock to the shores of the Charles River and open a tavern. So there probably were like seven buildings all together in Boston at the time. Yeah. The Prudential Center, <laughs> Faneuil Hall, O'Shanley's Pub, <laughs> and then you know two houses for the people that worked at the Prudential Center and the other place. Boston's a drinking town. That's 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 for sure. It's funny because like uh, as I understand it, they tried to have a happy hour there, but they were turned down. No happy hours in Massachusetts. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. Famously, no happy hours. What a what a door that was. Uh, moving on to March the 5th. March the 5th, 1989. This is such a stupid story. This guy, Michael Anderson Godwin, he was a convicted killer, and he was sentenced to death in the electric chair, right? Yes. But they changed his sentence. They changed it over to life, so he was spared the electric chair. However, oh. he was sitting on his toilet... In the jail cell, the toilets are made out of metal. Yeah, you can see where this is going, right? So he's sitting <laughs> on the toilet naked, working, you know, trying to repair some headphones that were connected to a TV that was plugged in. And yeah, our good friend Godwin gave himself his own electric chair and died. Oh, I don't want to laugh at that, but I don't know if I can keep from laughing at that. That's that's rough. I, if I was a... Dodge the bullet there, Godwin. I did, didn't I? Yeah, you really got the door's luck. Hey, you wanna, can I borrow your headphones? Yeah, they don't work good, but you might have to. I can patch them. Don't worry, I'm good. Can you imagine, like, the correctional officers just, like, seeing them and, like, not being able to stop laughing at the irony of the whole deal? They must have been like, are you kidding? We're going to get blamed for this. I'm sure that's the first thing they thought. Like, they're going to think we did this. They're not going to pin this on, on me. He doorted himself. <laughs> he did. He doorted all over the floor, too. That's tough. I didn't think they did that when they put him in the chair. Oof. I'm glad I'm not on the cleanup crew. All right, next up. March 6th, 1992. Bill, I'm transitioning almost to our celebrity birthdays because this is specific to a celebrity birthday, even though he's not one of ours for today. But Michelangelo's birthday is March 6th. One of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, yes. Yes, exactly. The one with the staff, I think. No, it's, it's the guy that inspired him, the one that made the statue of David with his junk hanging out. Yep. Well, there's a computer virus named after Michelangelo because mm -hmm. beginning March 6th of 1992... This particular computer virus was identified as one that would lie dormant in an infected machine until March 6th, come active, overwrite a whole bunch of data, and then go inactive again for a year and hide inside of the, the system. I actually remember the news reports of increasingly panicked and terrified newscasters warning that this could like ground airplanes and mess up the stock market and cause traffic lights to blink instead of flash and flash instead of blink. Dord shows up in other dictionaries and no one knows what's going to happen. And it turned out to be a big sort of like the year 2000 transition crash. Right, It was yeah. a big, big deal. The practical offshot of this is uh, your friend and mine, McAfee, who you would know from, you know, McAfee antivirus uh, software he thought or from increasingly paranoid text messages before we died in like an indonesian jail just putting yeah. that out there uh he said that there was going to be like five million computers that was his estimate five million computers infected and cost damage that would be as high as like 60 million dollars but it only affected only it affected 10 to twenty thousand. You know, you know just some lost data and all that. I mean, that's still like a big deal. I wouldn't want that, but... You wonder how it travels, because 92 is pre-internet, so... Yep. 
it would have had to go in infected or surreptitiously infected either hard drives or floppy disks or, or something that gave it the ability to, to move between computers where they weren't networked together. Right. And then, you know, like I said, McAfee was like, oh, yeah, there's going to be like six million. That might have been just like a marketing ploy to sell his uh, <laughs> his generic uh, like level version of software. I know exactly how to fix this. <laughs> I got right. it. I got it down. Pay me. All right. So let's get on to the celebrity birthdays. Actual celebrity birthdays. Yeah. Yes. February the 28th, 1931, Captain Stubing himself, captain of the love boat, Gavin McLeod, who was basically like the nicer and marginally less handsome version of Mr. Rourke from Fantasy Island, as we discussed a couple of weeks ago. Well, they were definitely billed at the same block of programming. Right. So. You know, one leads into the other. Yep. You know, he was, I mean, that's where he's probably most famous or what people are really going to know him for. Before his 10-year run on the Love Boat, he was also on the Mary Tyler Moore Show for like seven or eight years. Yeah, that's right. He was, wasn't yep. he? And he was also in McHale's Navy. Yep. What did, what did he do after the Love Boat? Uh, Love Boat movies, I think. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I think he became a door-to-door salesman. <laughs> Next up. March 1st, 1922, comics editor of EC Comics and then later Mad Magazine, William Gaines. He came to prominence as the editor of EC Comics as right as Frederick Wortham released his book, Seduction of the Innocent. And he ended up in front of a congressional panel answering questions about comic books and juvenile delinquency that led directly to the comics code. That's why Mad Magazine was a magazine. Well, why they called it a magazine, so they didn't have to subscribe to the comic book code, right? Yep. And they, they studiously avoided horror comics, uh, because those were considered like a third rail, as it were, yeah. from the 50s, 60s, and early 1970s. I, I love the Mad Magazine. That was such a like rite of passage, I think. Mm-hmm. Not like everybody in our generation bought and read Mad Magazine, but the ones that did kind of like found each other too. It was a very specific set of people that kind of read that. Let me ask you a question, yep. Bill. How did you start to read Mad Magazine? I don't remember. Probably because, I'm going to guess, probably because they had like some sort of Star Wars parody, mm-hmm. I think. I'm going to guess. I don't remember. I, re- I, I remember having the disco record that came with it. Ah, yep. I, re- I remember, and I think a lot of folks our age probably had a similar experience is my dad was laying on the couch reading it and i said dad what are you reading he goes here this is pretty funny and just handed it to me and at that point i became a mad magazine reader Um, i was maybe seven or eight years old no my father didn't read mad magazine he would read it whenever i had it around the house you know my dad had to do the fold-ins because i wasn't good enough at doing those be like dad can you do the fold-ins like fine do the fold and i'm gonna read the whole magazine So I'd have to wait an hour after he did the fold-in for him to give the magazine back to me. All right, so next up, March the 2nd, 1860. Ooh, a youngin. Here's a fun story. This woman, this woman was born March 2nd, 1860. Uh, Susanna Madora Salter. Uh, she was an American politician, and she was also the first U.S. woman ever elected mayor. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's very interesting, but here's the very interesting part. She was nominated as a prank. She didn't even, yeah, she didn't <laughs> even know. Wait, wait, wait. How do you get nominated as a prank? Yeah, she didn't even know she was running for that office until the morning of the election. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this must be in the years before, like, political mailers and phone calls and TV commercials and radio commercials and people uh, going door to door. Yeah, well, yeah, it was 1860. Uh, yeah, she was nominated without her knowledge by a group of men who opposed women in politics. Probably they didn't like women in wearing pants in Boston, too, the bastards. More than likely. Yeah. 
So they were trying to like make fun of her and discourage other women for running for office. And then she ended up winning two thirds of the vote. Never underestimate the power of people who vote out of spite. Right. And that's a thing too. Like if you follow elections at all, getting two thirds of a vote is getting your ass kicked. You know, <laughs> that is yes. What we in the, in the election following business called a Dording. <laughs> she took him to Dord school is what she did. Yeah, he's a resident of mayor of Dordtown. Yeah. Now, yeah, she served for one year. She won and she went with it. Yeah, she served for one year and then she declined to run for re-election, which she won in a I... landslide. No. <laughs> she... <laughs> <laughs> and then she was voted president of the United States. Yes, I'll have to go and I'll have to go and read up more. And I wonder what she was able to accomplish in the year that she was an officer, if she was just stymied by the way that the machine worked, if she was, you know, one of those like, all right, yeah, I got, I'm counting the days down till I'm done with this dumb, dumb job. <laughs> These people are all insane. She but, lived to yeah, be like 101, dude. I know. Can you imagine that? She died in 1961. Yeah. I can't even imagine from 1860 to 1961. All right. Next up. Bill. I have a business opportunity for you. Okay, I'm listening. If you give me 500 bucks to invest, yep. I can guarantee you tripling your money back in one year. So like 300% return on your investment. Okay. It's pretty good, huh? Sold. And if you can get two or three other people to invest with you, you'll also receive a part of their investment as part of uh, my business plan. This sounds... Sketchy. Does it sound yeah. vaguely familiar? Yes, it does. It does. Yeah. But in 1882, a man named Charles or Carlo Ponzi was born. Hmm. And came up with this scheme to steal money from people and was incredibly successful. So successful that multi-level marketing schemes are still called Ponzi schemes. He's the guy that defined fleecing people of their money with baloney investment plans. And how they worked was he'd solicit money and promise returns on investment. And then he'd pay off previous investors with a little bit of the money that he took in and he'd just spend the rest on himself. Right. So there was never anything invested in anything. It's like I, I get $500 from you and then I use that to pay back the guys that invested $100 last time. Right, yeah. Right, and it works like what you do is you convince people to just like, ah, just keep the returns rolling back in so you'll get more and more money. Mm. You know, So come back, we'll talk in a year and we'll see how much money you earn because it's going to compound interest. So you don't ever get a dividend check. I spend that money on, you know, wine, women, and song. <laughs> and you'll never know until the police finally show up and go like, hey, where's all the money that these people have given you? Where is it invested exactly? And you go like, well, I bought some steaks and, uh, <laughs> and I went on a boat. And uh, do you like my, my hat? It comes from Dord Incorporated. It's pretty. <laughs> it's, a, um, it's a fedora. <laughs> yes. And then, boom, into jail he goes with some faulty headphones. No, uh, Ponzi went to jail a couple of times for this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And never stopped trying to fleece people out of money. He died in 1949, so he lived a long time. Well, ripping off. Not 101 years, but good for him. All right, moving on to March the 4th, 1947, horror movie icon Gunnar Hansen. Oh. Yeah, uh, who played Leatherface in the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And also yes. somebody I name drop quite a bit because uh, I was lucky enough to not just meet the guy, but I get to hang out with him a couple of times too. That's very cool. Yeah. Was he in the second one too? Was he in? No, he Texas was not. He was in the first one, and then there was like uh, Texas Chainsaw 3D in 2013. He was like in the opening scene, opening sequence to that that like drew back to the original movie. I know they've been doing it lately with like Halloween and Candyman, but that was like another one where they have a sequel movie that ignores all the previous sequels. 
Right. I thought he only did Texas Chainsaw, but no, he's got a bunch. He's got a bunch of movies oh. under his belt. Yeah. Are they all horror films, or is he in other stuff? No, mostly. Or was he in other stuff? No, mostly uh, uh, horror films. I mean, the guy's six foot four. You know, so right. he's got a yeah. There's not much room in the rom com field for that yeah, guy. He's, he's got a he's got a look, yeah. But he was in Freak Show. He was the Freak Master. If I remember that one. Oh. Yep. All right. Going on to the fifth. March fifth, nineteen seventy four. American actress Eva Mendez is born. Now you may not recognize the name right off. But I she don't. Was, she was the the cop who was attached to the villain in Too Fast, Too Furious. The best of the early. I think Fast and Furious movies. Uh-huh. I know some folks will argue with me. And she was also Sheila, I think that was her name, in uh, The Other Guys, Will Ferrell's wife, who helped him develop the Faceback application, which was very funny. I, I know who she is. I'm, I'm not really familiar, though. I, I think I've seen part of one of the Fast and the Furious movies. It was like Boss on one of the bus trips that we took out to New York. We saw Tokyo Drift, yeah. That could have been actually the, the ride at Universal Studios, <laughs> the Fast and the Furious ride, which was pretty much sitting on a bus watching people chase around CGI helicopters. <laughs> She's been in a whole bunch of other stuff, but that's like that's what I know her from. Oh, sure. I think she went on to be in more of the Fast and Furious movies later. I know she's in like Fast Five at the end when they introduced Dwayne The Rock Johnson or Fast and Furious 4 or whatever. And she's one of the, like, the regular cast members now. She's super duper funny when she's in a comedy. Yeah. Like, really, really funny. She has really good comic timing. Nice. And she's really good in action movies, too. All right. And wrapping up the birthdays, I've got a conspiracy theory. I think I know who invented the Michelangelo virus. Ah, who might that be? All right. So, born March 6, 1939, a man by the name of Adam Osborne. Ah. Yep. He's from Thailand. He's British. It's less serious. He's a... Thailand-born British American. Yes. Yeah, a little, little bit of a, a little bit of Monica on that. No. Yeah. <laughs> That's like when you go to like a, a an upmarket but still chain restaurant, and you can get authentic Oriental Southwest marinara. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So anyway, uh, he was a personal computer pioneer, and he created the first commercially available portable computer called the Osborne One. Yes, and. In 1981. Okay. Yes, and if, if you've ever seen a picture of them, it looks like it, it's like... Um, I'm looking at one now. It's like a two-foot-tall suitcase yep. with a four-inch screen in it and two floppy drives, and it weighs like 36 pounds. I wouldn't say four-inch. I'd say closer to two. It looks like the, it looks like the size of a saltine, the, the screen. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's very small. Yep. So yeah, what, this, it, it, what this guy's known for is what is known as the Osborne effect because he was like, after the Osborne 1 came out... He's like, we're already working on the Osborne tune. It's going to be so much better. It's going to be great. That's that and the other. And then everybody like kind of held out for the Osborne yeah. 2 and didn't buy the Osborne 1. And he ended up bankrupt, right. bankrupting his company. Yep. <laughs> yep. That's what happens when you tell people to wait a year for your next product to come out because it's going to be better than the one that's available. Right. They go like, all right, well, we can wait. I'm surprised Apple hasn't shot themselves in the foot with that. My theory is that Osborne got out of the computer business and into the computer virus business, and it and it just turned into <laughs> all like this like cunning plan. Yeah, this like mad scientist like wringing his hands together. <laughs> I'll show them. They'll never suspect me. <laughs> if they think the Michelangelo virus is something, wait till they see the Dord virus that comes out next year. So computer bugs, as we discussed a couple of months ago are actually based on real bugs that snuck into computer tubes in the old-style computers. Bugs are pests. 
Other pests are different vermin, such as mouse or mice. And what the only th- the only thing that I can think of that is worse than an arrogant rat is the worst song ever. What's worse than an arrogant rat, Jeff? A modest mouse. <laughs> Uh, I'm I'm gonna and it's, I'm a little mad at you it, today. <laughs> it's actually hard to pick a song that I dislike any more than any other Modest Mouse song because they are all kind of the same. No, you know, which is you're like, right. Yep. All right. So which one did we uh, pick? The song that we picked today is is their first like I'm gonna say mainstream and I'm waving my hands around because I don't think that that's the right term. But it's the first of their songs that actually got airplay on alternative radio right before that format died out. Had some time on VH1 right before that format died out yeah. and they still have a fan base that buys their their records even though there's no place to listen to them but on your own phone yeah or whatever all right so uh, and i picked float on. all right let's play the clip and then i'll tell you why i'm mad at you why i'm mad at you is i don't know modest mouse from a hole in the wall i i was like whatever you said float on by modest mouse i was like is that is that who does that song i didn't even remember you know this is like early 2000s i didn't know modest mouse so i said okay i'm gonna listen to a modest mouse album first i listened to float on because that was a song in question and then i went back and i listened to the beginning of the album and it was like is this is this float on Again? It's like almost all their songs sound exactly the same. Yes. I went back and I listened to their very first record. Yeah. It was from 1996 and it sounded like this record. The thing with Modest Mouse, I think, is that this is an industry desperately trying to continue the idea that there's an alternative scene to, to be had. Okay. And there just isn't. That f- radio format doesn't, it's not there anymore. All, at least in New England, all of the alternative format stations are, they're gone. Oh yeah, they are. They died out in the mid 2000s because- they got either got bought by Clear Channel, and Clear Channel said, uh, "You play what now? We play a lot of the Pixies. Yeah, uh, yeah, not anymore. Yeah, and, yeah, you're gonna play Metallica now. On. They're alternative, right? Yeah, they're an alternative. Play, uh, play that song that everybody likes. There, there was a period where like there's this weird sort of upsurge in garage rock, and this is I'm gonna say it co- corresponds with the first real availability of MP3s and legally purchasable commercial music on the internet so there's a place where you can go and find this stuff it's like oh you know what i used to love it when wfnx would play nothing but the pixies for an hour that was usually when i was eating handfuls of tylenol trying to destroy my liver (laughs) going back to modest mouse though i can't say i hate them because i don't get it i don't understand i it's like the two guys in the band that have been like the mainstays the guys that have been the band the longest are the guitar player and singer and the drummer, who are arguably the worst musicians in the band. The singer honestly sounds like somebody making fun of somebody who can't sing. Yeah, it sounds like a sort of jockey guy poking fun at somebody who's bad at karaoke. Yeah. And like in a mean way. <laughs> like as if you were trying to like pin somebody's like, oh, you know what you sound like? You sound like like the, the squeaky voice teenager on The Simpsons with your foot caught in a bear trap. 
like that's that's what you sound like right my thing is like all of their songs are like open chords over and over again with not even as exciting as the first two records by the white stripes quality single thump drumming it's so friggin' boring i was listening to the first album which called this is a long drive for someone with nothing to think about and it has 16 songs on it. I think it has 150 songs on it. I don't know how many hours I was listening to it today, but it felt like all of them. And I never got through the whole record, Bill. Oh, I didn't make it through all 16 songs. Here we go. Uh, like like we normally do over here. I'm looking at their Spotify. Number one song is Float On with yep. 264 million listens. They get used as bumper music on NPR, so that's probably uh, contributes a little bit to people knowing this song. Yep. I don't know where the hell it would fall in for bumper music because it wouldn't be like, Hi, I'm Cleft Cleave Boy of All Things News, and we'll be transitioning to our annual fun drive in just one minute. I for the flower. <laughs> I don't, I don't get that. I don't know where this fits in. Yeah. Another thing, too, was like I was trying to listen to the lyrics to see, you know, maybe, you know, somebody identifies with this kind of music. And the lyrics were just all nonsense kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh, I got into a car accident and then we all float on. Okay. I agree. There's a lot of nonsense gibberish lyrics as part of it. And a lot of their songs are like that. And some of them, it's like he's they're just openly yelling at the audience. I don't understand who the audience for this band is like i've never met somebody who says like oh my god i can't wait to go home and listen to modest mouse and like what is wrong with you like are you on a prescription because the dosage needs to be increased considerably i think i think i do some like millennials that like them when they were out but then again like i was trying to think back to like the music came out whenever i was that age and I think when you're in your early 20s, you're a lot more tolerant for what's going on at the time. There's, I think that there's an element of like, again, we were both 20 at one point in, back in the you know prehistory of humanity, right? Yeah. Where we heard garage rock and we thought, wow, these guys kind of suck. I bet we could do that. Yeah. And some of us went off and did it. Yep. Not me. I'm not one of those people. I did. but <laughs> Right, you did. But I'm sure there, there's, there are people who heard Modest Mouse who are like, wow, this kind of, you know, should, I guess anybody can be in a band. Yep. Ah, maybe I'll start one. There was a guy also, that used to go to like the open mic nights. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Nice guy. I like the guy. Don't get me wrong. I like, uh, he was a nice person. I ran into him at the supermarket and had a nice conversation with him a couple of weeks ago. But he used to show up at like open mic nights and play his guitar, which had three or four strings on it, depending on the night. They were not in the right place, and they were not in tune. And he didn't right. think that was very important. And he would just be like, bah, 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 bah. I mean, God love him. He was doing what he wanted to do, but what he wanted to do, it was Doherty. <laughs> it was Doherty on people. its best day, yeah. Yeah, there are quirky musicians who can get away with dumb stuff like this. Wildman Fisher, that's his whole shtick. Yeah. T-tune guitar by himself, yelling like he's standing on a street corner, shouting at a telephone pole. Right. These guys are, this is an aesthetic that they carry forth, irrespective of who's in the band. So you can listen to their first record, the record from 2007, or the one that came out in like 2017, and they all sound the same, even though only two of the band members are the original band members. Yeah, one of the guys from the Smiths was in one, was in the band for a couple of years. 
Yeah, Johnny Marr. I, I'm sure he was like, oh, at least none of these lyrics are like super icky emotional, yeah. you know, because. I think he was just hiding from Morrissey. I went and I looked at the Wikipedia page of band members. And again, this is another case of bands that show up or worst song ever list that have a, a rotating list of band members that's, that has more people in it than, than they have in their fan club. Yeah. So before we get into the trivia question, I do want to bring up this other song. I've always wanted to bring this song up on the show, but there's not enough to say about the band or even the song to qualify it for worst song ever. It is so funny. It's a song called Float On by a band called The Floaters, which, by the way, horrible <laughs> name for the band, right? Well, I don't know, unless you're on a double bill with the Klingons. Yeah. <laughs> it's four guys. It's just like a vocal group, right? They like introduce themselves one at a time, but they introduce themselves with their Zodiac sign first. Then they say their name. Oh, Jesus. And then they say what they're looking for in a woman. So it's like... Sagittarius, my name's Joe, and I like a woman that has her own mind. And then it goes through, right? And then, and then they're all like, it's like this smooth kind of like borderline disco, but like smooth uh, soul music, right? But the last guy, I, I don't know what the hell, why they didn't edit him out, because it goes like this. Cancer, and my name is Larry. And I like a woman that loves everything and everybody. <laughs> and I'm looking for a woman that'll talk to me. Yeah. Can I get? Don't run away when she sees me coming. Can I get a couple of bucks for the bus? I don't want. I want a woman who's not gonna file a restraining order. <laughs> All right, but you know what I want? I want a woman with a bunch of Grammys, Jeff. Oh man. Here is our trivia question. Our very popular and always well received. Which female artist has the most Grammys? I'm thinking about this as like this is like a weird kind of trick question because we didn't specify in what category. Nope, so, just uh, most Grammys, and the reason just most Grammys, and, and you'll see why I I I, 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 I picked I, this in a second. I Think I understand why, and I, I'm gonna go out on a uh, a limb, a long limb, and I'm gonna say knowing how long the Grammys have been around. And the quality of music that typically gets nominated and wins, that it's Barbara Streisand. That is an excellent guess and incorrect. <laughs> uh, she, as, as I'm just giving it a quick look right here, she is not even in the top t- uh, top 20. So God, the really? number one female artist with the most amount of Grammys is... Is it Modest Mouse? It's Beano. <laughs> It is Beyonce with 28. Wow. Yeah. She is actually tied for second place with the most amount of Grammys with Quincy Jones. Both have 28. And the reason why I went with the the female artist is because the person that has the most amount of Grammys is a guy named George Solti. Who? Exactly. Who? Uh, George Solti is a composer and uh, conductor. I think the... Thing that you would most famously know him for is he was the conductor for the Ride of the Valkyries in Apocalypse Now. The dun 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 oh. scene. Yeah. I, yeah, I know the song, but that's, I don't know the difference between one conductor and the next yeah, for that's any him. Of that stuff. He's got the Grammy for it. Yeah. He's got the most Grammys, and the reason why I picked Beyonce over him is because I couldn't pick George Salty out of the lineup. You know? And Beyonce, well, she had the best video of all time. Of all time! 
<laughs> well, paint me in plaid and call me adored. Yeah. <laughs> I never would have got that one. No matter what I no matter what I came up with. That's gonna wrap up this week for Twibbly. We will see you back here in seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff. Hey. Good night, Jeff. Bye guys. Bye everybody. Hey, thanks for listening to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Special thanks to James Coster for our theme music. You can find us and message us on Instagram and Facebook using TWWWBLY. Make sure you tell all your friends how much you love our podcast. Word of mouth is way, way cheaper than advertising.